Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. It is live. Welcome aboard the Broadway Bullet for episode 106. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of great stuff for you this week. Uh, We've had several requests for an interview with the big voice, and we got it. And hopefully we exceeded your expectations because we actually have two live in-studio performances from the show as well from the writers and actors. We also have Ron Severini, who's a manager for Castle Talent, Inc. We have the unique show, The Rejection Show. And Donna Trinkoff from Amos Musical stops by with a truck full of songs from musicals they're developing. So we just got a jam-packed episode. It's kind of musical madness, what with the four songs we're playing from Amos, the two live songs from, uh, from the big voice, and then we've also got Marty Cooper and on the positive side talking about four little-known musicals. So definitely musical madness this episode. Got a lot of great emails from our listeners this week. I always appreciate it. It keeps my uh, motivation up for why I'm doing this show. So, again, you can always email me at info at broadwaybullet.com. But let's not waste any time. Let's get into this jam-packed show. I know a lot of our listeners out there are artists in their own right. If there's one thing that isn't given in the life of an artist, it's rejection. So John Friedman is the creator, producer, and host of a show designed to help us through those critical moments. He's the creator of The Rejection Show, which runs monthly at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. How are you doing, John? I'm good. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> and you are joined by Rich Zeroth. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, why don't you start off, uh, John, by letting us know kind of the, the whole premise of your show. Sure thing. Um, in its most simplest form, The Rejection Show is a 
variety show, a humor-based variety show that features material that's been rejected from other places. And by variety, I mean from TV, from radio, animation, magazines, still frame cartoons, miscellaneous rejections, uh, personal rejections, all different kinds of rejected material that would uh, be fun and entertaining and uh, just in a way therapeutic to be displayed live on stage at a comedy venue like the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. So what's one of your favorite rejections that you featured? One of my favorites, I, I get asked that a lot and because I, I work on the show so closely and I put them all together for a few years now, it's, it's, it's hard to pick a favorite. <laughs> but I really enjoy, I mentioned the miscellaneous rejections and that's one of the reasons why, why I wanted Rich to come today. <laughs> Those are really my favorite, the unique types of rejections that people come to me with, the ideas that they have. You know, it's not just your typical, my pilot was rejected from TV, which of course I love too, but just something I would never would have thought of that could be great and entertaining that I never would have thought of as a rejection. Well, Rich Zeroth, why don't we then get into your story? What was your rejection? Yeah. Well, it's a good thing mine was one of your favorites because I happen to be sitting by you right now. So, <laughs> Imagine how that works out. Yeah, this, this, this works out perfectly. Mine has to do with the Orbits.com website. And uh, more specifically, they have this new feature now where they will leave you a voicemail uh, reminding you what time your flight departs. Evidently, the last time I used the, the site, I must have inadvertently signed up for this uh, voicemail because uh, I received it. And at the end of the voicemail, um, it leaves a confirmation number, uh, which after I heard it, I thought was entirely way too long. Um, so I made it a point to save the voicemail. And then um, after listening to it um, a couple times, I guess I had decided that uh, I had this goal that I wanted to call Orbit's customer service and um, repeat the confirmation number back to them in hopes that I wanted to get them to admit that it was, in fact, uh, far too long for a confirmation number. Okay, I, I think before we go further, mm -hmm. I think, what's a long confirmation number? Do you happen to have this, <laughs> this voicemail on you? Again, uh, by an amazing coincidence, I do. So uh, <laughs> I, I can play you the original voicemail that, uh, that they left me. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that now. That's too long for you? It just by like <laughs> by like four. It's too long by like yeah. it, by four, I would it, say. It's, it's, it's long, but like we're setting it up. We're telling you it's long. You just get this voicemail out of nowhere. You're not expecting, <laughs> you're not expecting a, a, a long confirmation number or a confirmation number at all. So mm -hmm. in that sense, it's pretty long. <laughs> I laughed so hard I missed my flight. <laughs> exactly. You, you missed your flight by writing down the confirmation. Yeah, it took me too long. I was they were they were boarding when the voicemail started, <laughs> and then I missed it. Yeah. So you call up orbits. 
uh, yeah, so uh, I called up Orbitz, and my, my first attempt was I just said, you know, hi, I, I just need to confirm a flight, and I happen to have my uh, Orbitz record locator number here. And they said, okay, great, would you mind repeating me that number? And I, I read it back to them in the same sort of robotic monotone fashion. And then uh, when I finished, they just repeated it back to me very fast, like, oh, did, did you just, so that was AP124007, and they said it very fast, and uh, so that it didn't make the number seem very long at all. So I was, you know, I was like, shit, I don't know if I can say shit, but I was like, you know, <laughs> you can. that didn't work at all. So I kind of hung up in panic. So then, so then I, I'd try over and over again thinking, well, maybe that was just someone who was just extra polite on the phone. So I tried like two or three more times. Um, each time with the exact same result, I would even purposely like transpose a couple numbers to try to throw them off. And um, at the end, instead of uh, me getting them to admit that their confirmation numbers are far too long, it ended up just being a testament to Orbit's amazing customer service and, uh, you know, extreme. I've never talked to such a, such accommodating uh, patient people. So well, um, with, with, in with their those lives, numbers, maybe they have a recruitment campaign out there for autistic people. That's true. Maybe, yeah, maybe they're all, yeah. Nuts, Basically, uh, Rich and I just work for Orbitz. We, we fooled you. <laughs> this is just a, one big commercial for Orbitz. Right, right. I'm just kidding. Right. So okay. after it didn't work for so many times, then... Um, Obviously, that idea had been, you know, rejected in my mind. My, the, whole, the whole idea had been rejected. I am unable to get them to admit that their confirmation numbers are too long. So sort of then as a last-ditch effort um, um, or sort of as a consolation to me, I called them and repeated them a confirmation number that was my own, that was entirely far too long. In fact, it was, uh, I guess, what I'd call the never-ending confirmation number. I just wanted to read a number and get them to either tell me to shut the hell up or to hang up on me. I figured that was the only way um, I could get even with them. So uh, when I went on the rejection show and told the story, and then I ended by playing um, me actually getting them to admit that a confirmation number can be too long, not necessarily <laughs> theirs. And I understand you have that phone conversation with you as well? Uh, in fact, I do. Just getting Eight, started. I M Q three D C three P zero seven 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 R two D two X two Y K R P Q one. Thank you. 
need to repeat that? <laughs> and that's pretty much really where it ends. <laughs> I counted the numbers. Oh, you did? 67. 67. And you also said C3PO and R2D2. Uh, well, I said C3P0. <laughs> I had actually scripted out the whole confirmation number, and I did put C3PO and R2D2 in there, but I read it incorrectly. I said C3P0. <laughs> <laughs> what is the crowd like for these shows? Uh, the audiences have been amazing. I just it's, it's what makes the show successful. The audiences are so supportive. They're just there, ready to laugh. And I think the main reason why they are is because they can all relate to being rejected. They're at a show, and a comedy show, where, where it's, it's just kind of a new way to watch comedy and entertainment. You, now, if any of our listeners have a good rejection story that they want to be on the rejection show, how would they get in touch with you for that? They can get in touch with me through my website, which the URL is rejectionshow.com, and you'll find contact info there. For me, and and there's also I'm I'm actually updating the website now, um, but you'll find a new tab button that says submit your rejection. I have a, a book coming out based on the rejection show also through Villard, which is an imprint of Random House. So you can submit to be on the show, and you can also submit to be in the book, and as well as the website. Now this is once a month at the Upright Citizens Brigade. Yes, it is. It's been in many different venues, but right now it's at the UCB Theater. And uh, for our listeners, I think the next show they could catch would be in April. Do you happen to know those dates yet? Or Yes, April 11th at 8 o'clock at the UCB Theater. Usually the second Wednesday of every month is what's a rejection day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds like a great place for our listeners to take out their frustrations <laughs> at, yes. at the powers that be. And I, I thank you, Rich, for coming down and sharing your, your Orbit story with us. No, thank you, and thanks uh, for John for inviting me. Of course. All right. Well... <laughs> See you guys later. Okay, thanks so much for having us. Take it easy. On the boards. The Big Voice is a new musical that has been running off-Broadway since November 30th. And not only is it a real-life love story between the composer and book writer, we have the composer and book writer here with us today. How are you guys doing? We're fine, Michael. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Good. You want to introduce yourselves quickly? No. <laughs> I'm Steve Shacklin. I'm the composer and the lyricist. And I'm Jim Brochu, and I wrote the book to this marvelous musical. What was the inspiration for this musical? The inspiration was a phone call from the Laguna Playhouse saying, we'll pay you a lot of money to come down for a one-night show and entertain. That's our favorite kind of inspiration. <laughs> we had, uh, we, our first musical was called The Last Session which ran in New York. It had a respectable run about 10 years ago. And then the Laguna Playhouse in California um, produced it, and about four years ago, they said, we're doing three special evenings. Uh, why don't you guys come down and, and tell a couple of stories about your life, sing a couple of new songs, some old songs. And I wrote this book around uh, Steve's latest songs, and we called it The Big Voice, God or Merman. We kind of been putting it together because I'd been on the road doing uh, solo concerts, and, and he had been at home, <laughs> taking care of the cats. And we just tried to figure out some way that we could both uh, do something together. And so uh, we started to formulate this idea of, of maybe writing a show around the two of us that we could just go perform somewhere. Uh, what we didn't realize is that when we got the call from Laguna Playhouse that it would end up being in a theater. We had actually thought maybe a little nightclub act. You know, we didn't know. We were just writing it, letting it speak for itself. I was thinking more about the Metropolitan Opera House as... <laughs> The final place for this. But, so anyway, we went down to Laguna, and uh, the place came apart. They loved it. 
And we thought, well, maybe we have a show here. So we put it into a workshop. Um, a producer uh, from the Zephyr Theater in L.A. said, well, we'll, we'll produce it. And we, we'll give you a three-week run. And the three weeks turned into four months. And then that turned into a, uh, a run in Rochester, New York. And then a theater in Houston heard about it. From Houston, we went to Omaha, to Chicago, to Dallas, to Palm Springs. Back for another run in Los Angeles, where we were presented with the Los Angeles equivalent of the Tony Award, called the Ovation Award, for Best Musical, presented to us by Jerry Herman. So it's really been quite a journey from this one phone call that we thought will go down for one evening, and it's turned into a journey of 5,000 miles and now 500 performances and uh, eight cities and a lot of new friends. So although it's open November 30th in New York, you guys have been doing this for quite a while. Yes, the first performance was the 12th of August, 2002. That was the night in Laguna. As we interview, you guys are getting ready to replace yourselves in the show for the first time. You know, it's something we always wanted to do. When, when we were first writing the show, in fact, a lot of producers were hesitant about bringing us to New York because uh, they said, well, we, we don't know if this show can stand without the two of you in because it. Because they're both so magnetic and wonderful on stage, I can understand their trepidation. I think they're probably referring most to the fact that it's pretty autobiographical. It's, okay with It's that a two-man, one-man musical. That's, we call it a, a solo, a duet for one, or a solo for two. What do we call it? There was a little, it, we're, actually the subtitle is a musical comedy in two lives. And, uh, oh, that doesn't work anymore without the intermission. But anyway. <laughs> it's still two lives. It is still two lives. We had always been curious about other guys doing the show. And uh, we had a commitment coming up that we knew we could, you know, run for four or five months and commit to that. I, I'll tell you, Michael, to be absolutely honest, we thought we would come into New York and we'd get kind of dissed. Okay, here they are. You know, it's all right, but uh, it's not very exciting. And then the reviews came out. A love letter, a rave in the New York Times, unlike anything we'd ever read before. I mean, people would kill for these kind of <laughs> raves in the Daily News and oh, Variety and the Village Voice. They all just came out. You know, it was very touching what they had to say about the show. So we, all of a sudden, we were in for a run. I have another commitment uh, that w he and I have to go to Houston to do another play in April. And the show was sustaining itself, and the producer said, well, how do you feel about two other guys taking over? And we said, we're all for it. And two guys came in, Dale Radens and Carl Danielson, and they were us, and we laughed, and we said, do you want to be us? And they said yes, so they take over on March 17th and continue the big voice Well, we go off to... To Texas. That's the great thing about being in New York. You know, there's such such great actors here, and in the it was incredible in the in the auditions watching them do our lines and call themselves by our names, and getting laughs where we never got laughs. I mean, they're really really good. So I'm I'm really thrilled about seeing you know genuine New York actors come in and just take these roles and make them their own. And we always dreamed. We never really knew that we were writing a full-scale musical, but that's what it is. When you think about it, actors always play other characters on a stage. And they play other people, whether they're real or whether they're fictional. So the fact that it's actually two real people really doesn't make any difference. They're still playing two characters.
Before we continue, you guys are going to perform a couple numbers here live. <laughs> um, yes. Live yes. here in the studio for us. So do you want to set up this first song we're going to play from the show? Uh, this is a song about living in the closet and the effects of the evils of living in the closet and how both of us survived our younger days, me in a small town in Arkansas and him in, what were you in? You I were was in, in a military school in Oakdale, Long Island called LaSalle <laughs> Military Academy. See, he was going to grow up to be the first Brooklyn-born pope. So that's... I was. And then my father introduced me to Ethel Merman when I was 13, and my life changed forever. And I was going to grow up to be Ted Haggard. How on earth could I have blown my cover? I always cross my legs the manly way. I check my fingernails with palms curled upward. And I never go to opera or ballet. So I felt my safety lay in keeping secrets. Cause one thing I have learned here in the South Country boys don't care for queers At least until they've had some beers And each one has a great big southern mouth So I found myself just living in the closet And I fight each day to keep from going back Cause each time I see the light of day Something in me turns away Cause I got so used to living in the closet Well, my father knew that I was different And so he came up with a great solution to fix that problem He decided to send me away to an all-male military boarding school And there I would spend the next four years up close and personal With 300 other horny teenage boys I was a man in uniform And you know what's funny? I was getting beat up every single day by the same ones I was doing it with every single night. As I grew, I found myself still hiding Like a superhero has to do I made a world of comic books and music So no one on the outside could see through It was different in my little Baptist college I was in the choir and dating Christian girls There is never pressure to perform in a Southern Baptist dorm Of course they never saw what I did in the closet Well, I was catapulted out of the closet my junior year of high school when I got caught experimenting in the chemistry lab of course, I was experimenting with an exchange student from Palermo. His name was Aristotle Spadavicelli. The headmaster walked in with two other cadets. They saw what was going on. Word spread all over the school, and within an hour, I was more sought after than uranium. Ooh. Then one day somebody spread a rumor the handsome dean of students called me in He looked right into my eyes that day And said, my boy, get down and pray Then he looked at me and said, come closer Around my wrist he slipped a rubber band He said to snap it when my thoughts got dirty I snapped so much I almost lost my hand So you see it's painful living in the closet And you know that there is something really wrong 
When you're standing in the light of day If something in you turns away Then you know that you've been wounded by the closet When you're standing in the light of day If something in you turns away Then it's time to get your ass out of the closet Oh yeah, oh yeah. All right, now one interesting thing about the show, I think, obviously, is the title. Why don't you explain a little bit further of what the, the title has in meaning for you guys? Well, the big voice, if you go back to the Old Testament of the Bible, you never saw God. You always heard his voice. Let there be light. Let there be this. Noah, build an ark. So it was always the big voice from the sky. And uh, I started to think about Ethel Merman being the big voice of show business. And, and the show is about where do you find your religion? Where do you find your heart? Do you find it in, I should say, where do you find your spirituality? Do you find it in a church or do you find it in a theater? And for us, we have had more life-changing experiences in a theater than we ever did in a church. So the big voice in your head, is it the voice of God or is it the voice of Merman? Where does this inspiration come from, these little voices in your head that change your life, that make you say, I'm going to walk down this street today rather than this street, and you meet an old friend that you wouldn't have seen had you gone that way or the other. It's, it's about the choices we make in life and, and, and stuff it's funny. like that. And it's funny. Did you feel different writing songs that were more autobiographical than than some of the stuff you'd written in the past? Oh, well, all of his stuff is autobiographical. Everything I write is autobiographical. Our first musical, the, our first off-Broadway musical was The Last Session. And it was about a song, it was based on a bunch of songs that I wrote about my struggle with HIV. And so Jimmy wrote a book about a people in a recording studio making an album. So I'm, that's actually just about pretty much what I write. So how long did it take assembling all those songs and book them together finally to to make the show what it is. Oh, my God. It took us all of 10 days. <laughs> well, actually, I began writing songs right after the last session closed here in New York in 1998, 97. Uh, last session closed in March of 98. We had opened in May of 97, and the last performance was March of 98. And I began writing songs randomly. The way Jimmy and I have discovered that we write better, uh, I sort of get possessed by an idea, and I just start writing songs randomly. And just kind of following this thing that I get obsessed about. And I'll come up with a hundred different scenarios. And I'll say, hey, let's, write a, let's fit the songs into this kind of scenario. Let's make them. Let's do that. And all of a sudden, he'll, at some point, I feel like it's the Tom Sawyer method. You know, I'm painting the fence. Or uh, not Tom Sawyer, but the other one. That's it. Whitewashing the fence. Tom Sawyer and Becky Thatcher were you know, doing and, uh, smarmy things together. I start and... painting the fence. And then all of a sudden, he grabs the brush and... Takes it away. That's not the way to paint it. I'll paint it. <laughs> and that's pretty much what happened with the, the big voice. The method I use is I call Steve's songs the jewels of the show because each song is a beautiful gem of a story. And what I do is I'm like the jewels setter. I write the book to set the jewels. Well, let's hear one more of those jewels. We could just go ahead and just play it. Will I have bathed in the pure white light? Stood on the edge of the endless night I heard you call my name But you never came to carry me 
Cast is stepping in in uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, here in beautiful New York City. Carl Danielson and Dale Radens. I can't wait. They're so good. Yeah, they're wonderful. Well, we wish you the best of luck with the show continuing. Thank in you, your Michael. Absence. What do you have coming up in April? You said you had something going on. We're going to Houston. Uh, I'm uh, doing a new play that uh, we we tried out in Los Angeles last year called Zero Hour, and it's a one man show where I play the late great Zero Mostel. And uh, so we'll be bringing that back to New York next season. And then we have a new musical we're working on. We'll bring that back after uh, zero hour. So uh, life is good right now. So line them up and knock them down. And by, by the way, we're playing at the 47th. Uh, we're playing down at the Actress Temple Theater, which is actually a working synagogue. We thought it was kind of funny that, that the, the first musical, it's their first musical, off-Broadway musical in this space. And so the first musical in the Jewish synagogue is about a gay marriage between a Baptist and a Catholic. (laughs) Only in New York, folks. Only in New York. Well, thanks so much for coming down, and best of luck. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. The Call Board. Guess what, everybody? Our survey is complete. You don't have to hear me asking about it anymore. Finally got over 200 people. I want to thank everybody who took the survey. We greatly appreciate the information it provides us, and we are working at putting it to use. But you can still give me feedback at info at broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to hear it. Uh, One thing I heard from one of our listeners, and I want to see if it's a widespread problem, because I couldn't duplicate it, is uh, registering on broadwaybullet.com. As we know, for the Fan Yang-tastic Broadway (laughs) Broadway Bullet birthday blowout, we are giving away 75 pairs of tickets uh, if we get enough people registering on the thing. Otherwise, it's 50. Um, that is based on registration. So if you guys can't register, I need to know. Uh, please let me know at info at broadwaybullet.com, especially if you want to attend the show on April 26th and are unable to register. Got a couple interesting events going on. Uh, on Monday, March 19th, Roundabout will mark the 30th anniversary of Studio 54, a unique cultural landmark at their annual spring gala, Beyond the Velvet Rope. Uh, They're going to recreate the mystique of this bygone era for one night only at Roseland Ballroom 
with a gourmet dinner and incredible performances. The highlight of the evening will be an original musical review created by Tony Award winner Kathleen Marshall, director and choreographer of The Pajama Game, featuring today's hottest Broadway stars revisiting the music and glamour of those legendary nights. And then something with a little bit more lead time, uh, from March 29th through April 1st, New York City Center Encores is doing Face the Music, a musical comedy by Irving Berlin and Moss Hart. Encores presents the first full-scale restoration of Irving Berlin's and Moss Hart's Face the Music, a 1932 musical about a desperate producer in New York trying to raise the money for his latest review, Rhinestones of 32. The show, one of Berlin's personal favorites, contains a pair of Depression-era classics, Let's Have Another Cup of Coffee, and Soft Lights and Sweet Music. Okay. One last note in the call board before we move on. I want to let everybody know that I actually have proposals in XM Satellite Radio with John Van Susten and also the musical director at XM. And we've also got a pitch in for WNYC Public Radio in New York. Uh, they review that on April 1st. There's no direct timeline on XM. But I would like to put a call out that if any of you actually happen to know somebody important at either of these venues. Perhaps you could let them know that you listen to the program and uh, encourage them to get this show onto their airwaves. But let's get right back into the program. Up close. Two episodes ago in Volume 104, we interviewed Fan Yang of the Gazillion Bubble Show. Uh, no doubt you're fully aware of that because of the Fan Yang-tastic Broadway bullet bubble birthday blowout we're having in the contest that we're giving away. And we've invited Fan's manager to the studio. He heads up castletalent.com, and he represents a lot of very different acts. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. So you've been in this business for quite a while, haven't you? Uh, this year is my 50th year. I don't look that old, do I? Well, I started with my father, uh, that he used to book all of the Dunkin' Yo-Yo champions back in the mid-50s. And then after that, he used to book all of the, uh, the events that they did with hula hoops. So if you ever see, like, late at night and you see those old black and white TV shows or whatever with um, all the kids doing all the, uh, the hula hoops... That was his, yeah. <laughs> those were his events, and that's how we got started. And it's kind of been like that after that. And then I left, and uh, I joined Ringling Brothers and Barnum Billy Circus. Oh, that seems like a natural. <laughs> yep. And I uh, worked for, uh, directly for the producer, Irvin Feld, for uh, 20 years. And then after that, I left, and I was the casting director for the Walt Disney Company for 10 years. And then after that, I got my own company, production company. I'm actually the executive producer of the show and fans manager. So along the way, there's been, in addition to this unique entertainer, well, there was uh, worked with shows like uh, Siegfried and Roy. Put a show off Broadway a couple of years ago called Toxic Audio. Uh, ran at the John Houseman Theater. And that was Drama Desk nominated, wasn't it? We won the Drama Desk okay. for the most we... unique theatrical experience in America. And now I'm going to go after that title for fan this year. He's got to he's got to be a shoe in because there is no, there is nothing that compares to this show as far as being a unique theatrical experience besides the the gazillion bubble show so so how do you find these different talents i've been going around the world actually since oh 78 i've been traveling around the world because i started traveling for ringling looking for acts for ringling brothers bar and belly circus and we had ringling brothers bar and belly circus world and then we did uh, disney on ice and then we did uh, siegfried and roy and I was 
as an assistant to the producer, I would look around and see whatever unique artists I could find. So it afforded me the opportunity now, to be able to travel. Them? How did you even find them? Did you go up to like locals and say, do you know anybody who no, plays you know, there's, bubbles? No, there's different uh, <laughs> um, pockets of entertainers around. You know, they kind of start well, a long time ago. They would start in vaudeville, but there really isn't any vaudeville anymore. So it seems like nowadays it's either a, a theme park that you would start uh, as an entertainer to start growing in, or uh, and once they start getting a little okay, they start working in uh, on the cruise ship lines, and then from there they would take on take on whatever you know gigs that they can get. So we just I just keep on looking around, but there's um. There's trade shows and there's organizations. There's the International Jugglers Association and Unicyclist Society and Puppeteers of America and the International Brotherhood of Magicians. So I would go to all of those events in America and around the world. And you see some of the kids. You know, you see that, that kid that's just really passionate. If he's five, six years old, and then you go back a couple years later and you see, okay, now the kid's eight. What is he doing and how is he growing? How is he progressing? You introduce yourself. You see, you tell them information. You try to help them out along the way. And then they, if they're really serious when they get like out of high school and they want to start working doing this, then you, you know, if, if they're looking for management or if they're looking for an agency of some kind, um, I would talk with them and start trying to get them work that would help in the next level of their career to help guide them. But I've just always had a fascination for, for the variety arts. So uh, Fan and I have known each other for 15 years. Uh, when I was the, uh, the casting director for the Walt Disney Company, we uh, worked together on a television show at Disney World. And that's when we met and we just started corresponding. And then I started booking him more and more. And then he calls me and he says, I, I mean, he's, to me, he is the exact same passionate driven artists like Siegfried and Roy were or like Gunther Gable Williams and Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. I mean, Gunther trained tigers and lions and elephants and horses and Fan really trains bubbles. But he still has that passion for being the best that he can be and being the presenting the greatest show he possibly can. So when you, you know, when you've seen the show, so when you see the show, the the people out there, they'll, they'll know that this guy is, I mean, he, there isn't any better. He is the best on this planet. I don't know about the other planets, but this planet, nobody even comes close. Well, I have to say, I'm excited to to catch the show. Not only you know just all its glory, but I think it's going to be a blast seeing it on my birthday with a whole bunch of listeners from the show. <laughs> it's going to be insane. But when you're working and when you're coaching and counseling and helping these artists get their jobs, how hard is it for most of these alternative talents to develop their show from say being like a five minute kind of you know vaudeville sketch to somebody that can tackle and, and stretch out into a whole evening of entertainment by themselves. They just start, you know. This, it's, I don't think it's any different than the old vaudeville days. I mean, you get in front of an audience. The audience is going to tell you if it's good, if it's not good, if it's funny or if it's not funny. So, you know, they develop. They get five minutes. They get seven, ten. They just keep on adding to it. You try to introduce them. There's a lot of variety of entertainers that are out there that are really wonderful mentors, and they start taking, they find, you know, younger entertainers and they really, they have contests like Lance Burton. He's fabulous for, um, he's, he's one of the most incredible magicians in the world. And he has these programs where he teaches younger kids and he brings all the other professional magicians in and starts talking to them, training them, explaining to them, you know, what you should look out for, who you can talk to, where you can work, what books you can look at, what movies you can watch, and uh, what places you can go to, what agents to work with, what agents not to work with, and uh, what places you can go and you can get work and just keep on trying to gear your art and your craft to be as best as you can be. And some of the kids will continue on and some of them won't. 
But um, when you find that really raw talent, that that shooting star, that you can just see they're so passionate and they're driven and they're such nice people. You know, I mean, it really takes a lot. In addition to luck and timing and, and, and the skill, I think it's really the people have to love you. You know, I'm curious. You've worked with so many people over the years. You know, there's always just even – a lot of times people who would just even want to pursue acting or singing encounter enough resistance from their family for not pursuing a realistic career path. Do you see any trend? Is there a different sort of family relationship that tends to result with these people? Because I imagine a lot of the performers you work with have to have had even more extreme reactions from their family, you know, than, oh, than you want to be a singer, you want to be a dancer, you, you want to... First you're going to go to college, and then you're going to go do it. And that's great. I recommend the same thing. You know, get your education, and then if this is what you want to do, and this is, this is where your heart and your driven and your passion is, then go for it. So that's what I always recommend anyway, you know. But I, in addition to all those other things, at one time in my f former life, I was the director of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Clown College. So it was my responsibility to go around America to interview all of these kids and audition them and find out who really wants to be a clown, but who's really got that really special raw talent and that drive and that passion to want to be the best you can be in this particular field. And all those stories, I mean, I had kids that told me, my parents don't know I'm here. And then they end up doing, if they do well, it's really great because the producer was wonderful. He would like you, okay, you're going to get to your hometown. Here's 100 tickets. Invite all your friends. So you find the mother and father that maybe were extremely resistant, and then they go to the circus, and they're up there, and they're yelling and screaming for their kid, and then they're very proud. I think as a parent, as long as you find that your, your kid is happy doing what they want to do, and it's not hurting anybody, and, and they're making a living at it, and they, they see that there's a career, I mean, there's really no precedent for Fan Yang to all of a sudden be, to work in this field and end up being a 12-time Guinness World Record holder <laughs> to keep on going and to, to make, you know, all those things come true. But this is, this is what he did as a kid when he was six years old and he saw some bubbles and saw the rainbows in the bubbles. So you never know what it's going to be, whether somebody wants to emulate or wants to be like, you know, I, so I watch... Um, American Idol, and you see all those kids that are going into those auditions, and they say, well, they all can't be the next American Idol. You'll find that raw talent. So it was my responsibility for all the positions that I had to find that really true raw talent and to try to get them and give them as much information and as much opportunity as you can to really seek the level that they really want to seek. A director told me, he said, you can never try to force the petals of a rose open. Let it grow on its own. So I always thought that that was very appropriate in the entertainment business because you just have to kind of grow. And when you're right there and the rose is looking the best, that's the time, hopefully, that's your career and you've got that opportunity that knocks and you can really show off your talents. Well, I definitely thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts with all of our listeners. Maybe there's a couple budding uh, jugglers out there who will take heart. And uh, I said, looking forward again to joining you on April 26th for the Fan Yang-tastic Broadway Bullet Bubble Birthday Blowout. <laughs> See you there. So, thanks. Thank you very much. Side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side. Last week I spoke about a ridiculous show called Moby Dick that I kind of liked. This week I'm going to speak about three more shows that actually were a little more well-known to American audiences, uh, but very few people 
went to see them. One of them really hasn't made it to the States yet. It played in London a few years back. It was supposed to open here. It fell through for some reason. It's written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Jim Steinman, Whistle Down the Wind. It's based on an old story from the 50s about these kids down south who go into this farmhouse and they see a long-haired sleeping man as portrayed in the musical when one of the kids says, who's that? The man is awakened and uh, he says, oh, Jesus. And they take that verbatim. And uh, he's not Jesus at all, of course. He's, uh, he's just a motorcycle hoodlum, you know, who <laughs> probably wants to rob and plumage people. In any case, the production I saw in London was all about this wonderful staging, and, uh, and I'm a sucker for that. It was actually Andrew Lloyd Webber music, but it sounded more like meatloaf throughout the show because Jim Steinman used his... Uh, well, how I feel about Jim Steinman is like if you eat liver, no matter what you put on it, it's going to still taste like liver. This is a similar situation. No matter who uh, aids in his work, it's going to still sound like Jim Steinman, and it's going to sound like meatloaf and Bonnie Tyler and... Uh, and all of those people. But I'm a sucker for that over-the-top type music, and it worked for me. Another show was made great fun of back, I believe, 92, 93, a production from Holland called, as they would say, Serrano. I thought it was wonderful. It starred a, uh, a Dutch gentleman named Bill Van Dyke, who I later befriended, and uh, he often stops in the store when he's in New York. It's this wonderful storytelling of Cyrano. I called the show, actually, Les Mis with Feathers. Uh, it was all about these plumed hats and uh, wonderful moments in the show, though. And the girl playing Roxanne was someone I hadn't heard of at the time, Anne Renolfson, who's now playing Carlotta in Phantom of the Opera. She was fantastic. And they had these fantastic staging effects and smoke, and they used these sub-bass speakers under the orchestra pit, so when they started shooting off guns, they, it was like sense around, if you remember the old sense around movies. It kind of rattled the audience a little bit, and it, great effect, wonderful music. I don't know why it didn't make it. Another show, Amour, uh, with a, a score by Michelle Legrand, based on an old Frank story. Wonderful people, Malcolm Getz, Norm Lewis, uh, Melissa Arago didn't make it. It was in the intimate uh, music box theater, and it was just bright and friendly and funny. Music that reminded you somewhat of the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, of course it would. Just had a ball watching it, and uh, went out into the winter night after the show and thought, boy, this cheered me up a lot. The story of Amour is about this young Frenchman who uh, is highly anxious, and he goes to the doctor to get some pills uh, to rid him of his anxieties. And he finds in taking the pills that he could go from one side of, the, of a door to another, through it, you know, without bothering to unlock it. This was a great talent of his. It ends up that he finally gets the girl of his dreams, but he is going home one night, and he goes through the door of his house and gets stuck in the door and stays there forever. So here you have a man with one leg in and one leg out, and uh, truly absurd, truly sweet, and wonderful. Loved that show, didn't make it. I can go on 
with many other shows. Actually, there are shows that I've that other people have hated that I've hated. Nick and Nora, to name a few. A score by Charles Strauss, by the way, which kind of was good in listening to the CD. The funny story about Nick and Nora, the dog playing Aster. I might be going ahead of myself. Nick and Nora is based on The Thin Man. And it had Barry Bostwick and Joanna Gleason. Of course, if you remember the old Thin Man series of movies, if there are people out there that remember that, there was a little wire-haired terrier named Master. The dog got bad reviews because he couldn't bark on cue. In any case, towards the end of the show, Barry Bostwick said, let's go home. And someone from the back of the audience yelled out, all right. Well, until next time, this is Marty Cooper saying, stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. In the best of company. It's always good to welcome back a friend, and we have two-time previous visitor with us, Donna Trinkoff from Amos Musicals with us today. How are you doing? Hi, Michael. I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, well, all the times we talked before, we were about a very specific show at the time, and I told you I wanted to spend a little bit more time and actually talk a little bit more about everything that Amos does. I know you got a full mounting of Magpie going up, which we talked about in episode two. Yeah, well, you know, one of the, the things that we really focus on at Amos Musical Theater is the development of new musicals, and... It's a process that takes time and a lot of attention because there's a lot of people involved, from a lyricist to a writer to a composer, maybe even more than one lyricist. And then you keep layering on with a director and a choreographer. And so we've been really fortunate because we started working on Magpie a year ago, February, and we did it in our lab series for a couple of presentations. And the response was very positive, and we got a lot of good feedback. So our creative staff went back to the drawing board and made changes and put in a song here and moved this around there. And then we uh, did it again in September at the New York Musical Theater Festival for three performances. And again, we were really pleased with the response from our audience. Now, I have to say we're very blessed. We have the finances to mount a full three-week run and add all of the other elements that make up, you know, the joy of a musical. We've got a full band. We've got sets and lights and costumes. Kept working on the book and hammering it out and add to that an absolutely luscious cast with voices that we're just so lucky to hear and to have. And we've got our show. We're starting tomorrow night at the Players Theater on McDougal Street. And that's running through March 25th, correct? Through March 25th, we're running six shows a week, and uh, we kept the prices really affordable because we still wanted to get this show out to our audiences, so the tickets are only $20, $12 if you're a senior or a student, and you can order them from Theater Mania at 212-352-3101. And I, I just wanted to say the reason why I think this show has hit a chord is it's about a girl who's developmentally challenged. And she has to take medication to kind of regulate herself while she's trying to fulfill her life. And I think all of us are faced with challenges in our lives. And we can really relate to Maggie and the trials that she goes through. So she gets, you know, she really gets into our hearts. Before we continue, why don't we listen to a song from Magpie? This is the song sung by Tino, the young boy who she falls in love with. And Maggie faces a crisis where she gets very ill and, and Tino sings this song. Maybe I don't pray too much Lord, maybe I got no right 
I know I'm not an angel And I'm sure I ain't no knight Maybe I'm not good enough For you to give a damn I know that I'm not worth much But I know she thinks I am Give her back her music Give her back her song I promise that I'll keep her safe I'll never do her wrong She is someone special Anyone can see Give her back her music Let her sing for me Maybe I turned my back Lord, maybe you did it first I may not be your best work But I hope I'm not your worst Maybe I'm too ignorant To give a prayer a shot My words may not mean nothing But right now they're all I've got Give her back her music Give her back her light I never asked for nothing But I'm begging you tonight She is someone special Anyone can see Magpie, Players Theater through March 25th. But continuing on, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is it seems to me that being a producer for a nonprofit has to be a, a, a very different thing than being a producer for a commercial production. The mission of Amos Musical Theater is to create, develop, and produce original musicals that either have an ethnic point of view or lend themselves to multicultural casting, non-traditional casting. And we also are dedicated to training and um, bringing young people into uh, the performing arts. 
And so we have programs in schools. We have programs after schools. And we also have a Saturday training program for teenagers from all over the city uh, to learn the art of musical theater and learn a lot more beside that in terms of, of their own development and, and uh, confidence and uh, ability to express themselves and work in a group. They actually do a full production at the end of their year, which is coming at May, which I'll... But, yeah, keeping a nonprofit going is... Um, it's a challenge in terms of finding all of the funding we need to keep programs accessible to people who should have access to the arts. A lot of our programs, our ticket prices are kept very low. Our lab series are free reading series for people to come and be part of the process of the development of a musical. And then our programs for children are also subsidized because we want we want to be able to reach out to those audiences that might not have the opportunities that people have when they buy, you know, a ticket to Broadway. But even as artistic director, when you're looking to shows to pick, now ultimately, you know, commercial producers are definitely having to look at the bottom of the line and do they think this show is going to sell to a wide audience. How much that is, I imagine there still has to be a little of that in, your, in what you think you're developing up for a Moss, but where well, does that balance come? Well, the balance comes in the lab series that's the opportunity for new writers to get a chance to find their voice. And that might be a show that is going to have a lot of potential later, or it might just be a show that has a lot of interesting um, material that should be heard, but that not necessarily is going to reach a larger audience. But it might be a stepping stone for that creator for his next piece. I'm working on a piece right now that is fresh out of the box called The Psalms of Ruby Red which is a kind of gospel musical. You know, I always say to the people I work with, we can keep our eyes on the prize, but we have to walk the walk. You have to do every step of the way before you can get to that next level. You know, everybody obviously wants to go commercial and reach a wide audience, but it's not necessarily part of our process. But when we continue to develop a show, and we keep going to the next stage, the workshop stage, which has more rehearsal and more time. And then when we get to the main stage level, like Magpie is at, you know, we have hopes that that's a show that's going to, you know, have a life after it leaves Amos. And where that life is going to be, whether it's going to be off-Broadway or on-Broadway or in regional theaters, you know, that's that's a hope that we have for those shows. And just recently we've had two very satisfying successes Shout the Mod Musical was started at a mosque. It just enjoyed a six-month run off Broadway and is now beginning a tour around the country. It's been optioned for Japan and Korea. So I know a lot of people are going to get to see that show. And then another show we worked on for almost five years in developing uh, was called Stormy Weather, the Lena Horn story. Just had its world premiere at the Prince Music Theater in Philadelphia and ran there for three and a half weeks with Leslie Uggams as Lena Horn. Yeah, I know another show you've been working on for a while, um, Wanda's World. We actually played a song from it back in episode 15 uh, when it was getting a, a, some sort of a staged reading at the Lincoln Center. Yes, and then we did, we did uh, some further presentations of it in December and garnered a lot of interest. It's a, it's a charming, charming tween musical. And again, it was a perfect project for Amas because it's about a girl who in her fantasy life has a television show where she gives advice to troubled teenagers. But you find out very quickly that the advice is really for her because she is going to a new school and she has a strawberry birthmark on her face that 
she's very, very self-conscious about and very insecure about. So the whole show is about how she gains her confidence and gains her identity and eventually has her own TV show where she does give advice to people. And um, it, it's a, a show that appealed to the, the uh, junior high school crowd for whom it's really designed clear up through all the adults, including myself, who were just totally charmed by it. Now we're going to play another song from that at the moment. You want to set this one up briefly? This is where the most popular boy in school is running for student council president, and he's he's kind of the ideal that everybody wants to be like and, and be with, and he sings his song, which is his pitch to launch his, his candidacy called What's Not to Like. Welcome, Ty Belvedere. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. I'm happy to announce that I'm running for student council president. So tell us why we should vote for my favorite candidate. Well, I get straight A's from math to gym. I'm in the honor roll hall of fame. Extra credit? Yeah, I always get it. In fact, you could call him my middle name. And I'm a nice guy with a paper route. I got money and a really cool bike. Come to think of it, what's not to like? I'm a football star in a league of my own. Always at the top of my game. I made MVP three years in a row. You put the other teams to shame. Now I'm a quarterback with a mission. Going for the touchdown, then spike. When you look at it, hey, what's not to like? What's not to like? I'm elected president, there'll be changes going on around here. Like what? Yeah, what? What's the plan? Mr. President Belvedere. Press conference. Me, how do you intend to improve Cheese Valley? Longer locker breaks to start. I will see to it that locker breaks are extended to two and a half minutes. Me, what are your plans in regards to school dances? Better DJs with way cooler music. I promise I will not ignore this period. What are your long-term goals for Cheese Valley? Uh, pizza Fridays. Every Friday. Any kind of pizza you want with extra toppings. Is that all? Uh, if I'm elected president, I will not rest until there is a four-day school week for everyone. (laughs) I'm the main man you can count on to get the job you want done. From cooler DJs to longer weekends, I want to be your number one. So huddle around, cause I got plans. 42, 15, hi. When you look at when it, you look at it. I'm a whiz kid. He's a whiz kid. I'm a winner. Yeah, what's not to like? So uh, who were the composer and lyricists who wanted um, to? The, com- the music and lyrics are by Beth Falcone, and the book is by Eric Weinberger. And our director, um, which, who is attached to the piece, wonderful, wonderful director, Lynn Taylor Corbett. All right. Well, we're sampling a few things. Let's move on to another show. Again, we featured Escape from Pterodactyl Island, uh, a song from it, on Volume 11, when you're here to talk about the Broadway soul (laughs) as well. And uh, we're going to play another track from that. But what's going on with... Well, we have great plans for Pterodactyl Island. That's going to be our um, launched uh, main stage selection for our 2007-2008 season next fall. So we're going to do a full-scale production of Escape from Pterodactyl Island with a book and lyrics by Peter Morris and music by Michael Jeffrey. And uh, that uh, should be a lot of fun. It's, a, it's kind of a crazy musical that 
has everything from, you know, a a tidal wave to a volcano to crazy scientists to mutated animals and then a love story that really gets to your heart at the same time. This is a song where the fiancé of Robert, all of whom have been shipwrecked on this mysterious island, meets her estranged father, Dr. Devo, who turns her into a half-woman, half-pterodactyl. And uh, that kind of backfires on him because she takes over. And she still wants to marry Robert, but he's a little bit put off by her at this point. (laughs) So she sings this song called Love Made a Fool of Me. Didn't realize such perfidious and insidious acts of betrayal ever could happen. Gave my trust to you. This is what you do. Reprehensible, indefensible. This is the way you tell me we're through. Love made a fool of me. Whispering lies discreetly. Love made a fool of me. Heart shattered, soul battered. Love made a fool of me. Though I was duped completely. Now we will see who's the fool. Who would ever dream? would ever scheme your civility and nobility turn out to be a total deception gambled on the dice made the sacrifice luck eluded me you deluded me now i must pay the ultimate price love made a fool of me whispering lies discreetly love made a fool of me heart shattered soul battered love made a fool of me though i was duped completely Infidelities carry penalties. I am the judge and I am the jury. All this writhing pain, driving me insane. Leaves me cool to you, makes me cool to you, gives me the urge to suck out your brain. Previously songs we've heard a little bit from earlier, but I know we're going to be talking about a new one here as well, I'm playing a song from 108 Waverly. 108 Waverly is a kind of chamber musical. It's a four-person musical about two male couples. One of the couples lives in the 1920s and one lives in the 1990s, and they both live in the same apartment. And their stories are told simultaneously as they inhabit this space as a sort of time continuum, though they do not interact with each other from the different decades. And it's about, it's about 
where gay liberation has taken the relationships of and what it was like for the couple in the 20s and what it was like for the couples. It's, again, a very, very touching love story with just a beautiful score. So are there, what are the plans with uh, other readings or mountings of this happening? Well, we've done the um, presentation and now we're in the process of, of raising the money um, to do a full-scale production of 108 Waverly. And I wanted to play one song from the show, which is just a beautiful, beautiful song and for the couple in the 20s who are kind of closeted, and one of them who's having a great deal of trouble um, accepting his identity, but who's in love with all his heart, and he sings this song called Love You Have Stolen My Heart. Why was I blessed? What did I do? Was it some angel that brought me to you? What of this joy from my head to my toe? Who'd ever thought that I could feel so? Love you Smiles in my mornings put skip to my walk. You put words to my song. You put sense in my talk. You've given these gifts. Please never depart. Love, you have stolen my heart. You made my ears wiggle turned darkness to light you put swing in my arms added stars to my night you've given these gifts please never depart love you have stolen my heart love you have stolen my heart Now, who are the writers behind 108 Waverly? The composer is Lynn Portes, and the book and lyrics are by Dan Clancy. When you're working with, uh, you know, writers of all types, but it seems like you do work with a lot of new writers, how many of them have come up through, um, like, the various workshops, the ASCAP and BMI workshops and what, or how many have just kind of been doing it on their own? I think there's a fair spread, you know. They come from different walks of life. And, uh, for instance, uh, Beth Falcone of, with Wanda's World, she's a BMI graduate. And um, I think all of those worlds kind of intersect or overlap eventually when you come to New York because everybody kind of picks up from everybody else's ideas. The composer, for instance, for Pterodactyl Island, Michael Jeffries, is from England. So he comes from another set of, you know, creative people. But the director, Philip George, who also directed Shout, he worked in England for a while, so he brought him over. So like I said, there's there's a lot of frisson going on among, among uh, among the talent in New York. A lot of musicals come to us through ref- the referrals and, and friends of the company, people we've worked with before. It, it's the truth to tell, I think just about everybody in America wants to write a musical. Um, my doctor wrote a musical. <laughs> so I said, well, all right. I don't think we're quite to the extent of I, I did te- When I went to L.A., I did uh, do that test out thing of everybody I ran into. I said, so what's your screenplay about? Right. And everybody like had an answer. So, that, so that's the New York world. That's New York world. So we have a few other things on the uh, on the pikes here, um, including I'm very excited about the, I was mentioning before our academy. 
a lot of times we do revival. This is a teen academy. We have about 20 students, very talented students. And uh, last year we did On the Town. But this year uh, I found a new musical through a referral that was just so charming and so perfect for them. And it's called Sprang Thang, or the preposterous life of a sadly misunderstood black woman child artist growing up in the mountains and valleys of the late 1960s and the low plateaus of the early 70s, part one. They're buying the marquee now, right? That's right. And in this very irreverent kind of musical, this young girl who wants to become Zora Neale Hurston, wants to be a writer like Zora Neale Hurston, writes this piece for the for the talent show where she evokes the spirits of Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, and Dinah Washington. And she tricks the other girls who go to detention with her because they've all skipped gym into becoming these female blues singers. And then Frederick Douglass comes into the picture, and I just thought it was a, a fun way for young people to learn about their history and the people who kind of came before them and whose shoulders they're standing on now. I'm going to be doing that show uh, from May 9th to May 20th. Well, I definitely thank you, Donna, for coming down again and talking about all your show's current development and in the future and ongoing. And, it's and always everything. a pleasure, and I appreciate being here. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, and thanks for sharing so many great songs. Top of the trades. You'd think there was a, another terrorist attack hitting New York City's way because top Broadway names are fleeing the stage and they're being coming attached to upcoming television pilots. With pilot season well underway, casting news for the possible coming fall shows reveals more and more stars being plucked from the stage. Playbill.com offers a rundown of where you may find some of your favorite stage veterans soon. There are already 41 pilots listed featuring stage performers. It's a wonder that there's any of them left to perform right here in New York. New York City's opera Spring 2008 Revival of Ragtime has been postponed, the company announced March 12th. The reason given was the unexpected schedule conflicts of Frank Gallaty and Graciela Danielle. According to City Opera, quote, the company had planned to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the work by mounting a new production with the original Broadway team. Music by Stephen Flaherty, lyrics by Lynn Ahrens, book by Terrence McNally, directed by Mr. Gallaty with choreography by Graciela Danielle. Mr. Gallaty and Mrs. Danielle are an integral part of this team, and due to their unavailability, City Opera is delaying its production until the entire team is available to work on the piece. The musical, which was scheduled to open at City Opera on April 8, 2008, will be replaced in the repertory by musical theater work to be announced shortly. If you're hoping for a revival of Ragtime here, maybe you better hope that it comes in on the wheels of a dream. Mel Brooks may not have the dream team of Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, for his second Broadway musical, but Young Frankenstein will boast a cast that features Tony Award winners Sutton Foster and Shuler Hensley, as well as former Willem Gray star Megan Mullally. The New York Post reports that Mullally, who recently hosted her own TV chat show, will play the role of Elizabeth, created in the 1974 film by the late Madeline Kahn. Is that great casting or what? Foster, the young Tony Award-winning actress currently on Broadway in the hit musical The Drowsy Chaperone, will play Inga, created on screen by Terry Garr, and Tarzan Shuler Hensley, a Tony Award winner for his work in the Oklahoma revival, will play the monster. That's Peter Boyle, the late Peter Boyle in the film. The New York Daily also says that Roger Bart and Andrea Martin have been offered the roles of, respectively, Igor and Frau Blucher. Television roles, however, may prevent them from accepting those parts. We'll have more of the hottest theater news for you next week in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. 
not a lot this time, but I do again want to thank the tireless efforts of our interns, Hallie Parsonette, Victoria Myers, and Laura Costa. They're definitely helping out so much. If you're interested in helping uh, with transitions or spreading the word around at some of the websites, we really could use your help. You don't need to live in New York. Some of this can be done over the internet. So again, if you're interested, please just drop a line at info at broadwaybullet.com. Greatly appreciate the help. We'll be back next week with a lot of goodies on Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until then, thanks for hopping on board. All the hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet! It was a thrilling moment. We're starved, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So, Jake Kowski says my name, and I'm in the can. So actually, the bar fade thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much though when you proposed. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world, You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.